welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every episode, I take on a possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We start with a trip to the future, and then we teleport back to now to talk about what that future would really be like with the help of some experts. Before we go to the future, I just want to remind you all that Flash Forward is doing a live show in New York on August 15th. There are still some tickets available, so if you want to come, you still can. I will be there, obviously, and it will be super fun. Okay, let's go to the future. This week, let's start in the year 2046. Senator Campbell wants you to think he's a shining example of ethics and purity. Don't be fooled. An independent research group recently uncovered a server full of racist and homophobic vines recorded by Senator Campbell back in the teens. Go to www.vinetruth.com to see more, but we're warning you, they aren't pretty. I'm Kamala Khan, and I approve this message. After recession, the second Korean War, and the Texas break for independence, our economy has been growing for 10 straight months. We've got the largest tax relief since George W. Bush. No jobs lost to robots since August. Inflation, interest, and mortgage rates are low. Van Jennings' response? He's tweeting about the Harry Potter remake. Surely this nation deserves someone with more important things on their mind. Fair was 14, they founded the Trans Student Activist Resource Center at her high school. What was Kara Sackhoff doing? Running a Kim Kardashian fan tumbler. When Kid Lou Fair was 15, they marched against the discriminatory bathroom bills in North Carolina and Mississippi. What was Kara Sackhoff doing? Tweeting conspiracy theories about Taylor Swift. Our nation deserves someone with a true record of change, not just a popular Snapchat account. The choice is clear. Vote Lou Fair. The sound my retainer makes when I take it out in the morning is really sexy. My only talent is mastering dub smash. Having girls for props is a major key to my game. Yes, these are real tweets sent by Jules Varick in 2015. He doesn't want you to see them but the public deserves to know what they're really getting. Vote Cindy Mayweather, a candidate too smart to tweet. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will open up their work portals than ever before in our country's history. This afternoon, 12,000 babies went home with their families from their birthing pods. This year, nearly 2,000 people bought new homes. It's morning again in America, and under the leadership of President Janet Evison, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Why would we ever want to turn our country over to someone whose first Tumblr account was named Dork Ward?
So in this episode, we're combining two of my least favorite things, or at least my least favorite things to read think pieces on the internet about, politics and young people. Let's start with young people. Right now, there is a whole generation growing up online, kids with Tumblrs and Twitters and Snapchats and probably all sorts of other things that I don't even know about. And what this means is that a lot of their lives and their thoughts and their social interactions are written down somewhere. There is a recorded and searchable history of their jokes, relationships, fandoms, fights, and opinions. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is politics. Now, I've been thinking a lot about politics recently, for better or for worse. Uh, Here in the United States, it is an election year, which I'm sure you have probably noticed. And this brings us to the topic of today's episode. What happens when those young people start running for office? When our candidates have an entire internet history that is searchable for us to read? What if these teens tweet something at 15 that they might regret at 45? Do we learn to accept that their opinions may have changed? Or do we go through every candidate's entire social media history to find dirt on them? Does that tactic, that kind of opposition research, still work in this future? Or do we just throw up our hands and admit that teens have bad opinions and that hopefully those opinions have changed? So I want to start with a couple of stories about this from history, because obviously opposition research and trying to dig stuff up from your opponent's past is not a new thing. In fact, some of the earliest elections in American history were incredibly ugly. In 1824, John Quincy Adams accused Andrew Jackson of being married to a woman who was actually still married to another man. And in fact, he was right, but that's because the divorce paperwork hadn't gone through because it was 1824 and things took a long time. Anyway, Grover Cleveland who ran for president in 1884, was taken down by having a son out of wedlock. In 1972, it came out that a vice presidential candidate, Thomas Eagleton, had 10 years earlier gone through electroshock therapy for depression. And this revelation ultimately led to Eagleton stepping down from the VP spot. More recently, some of you might remember that Ron Paul got into trouble for racist and homophobic articles in a newsletter that his corporation, Ron Paul and Associates, put out starting in the mid-1980s. Now, Paul claims that he had no idea that this content existed, that he didn't read or write the newsletter that Ron Paul and Associates was putting out. But regardless of whether or not that's true, the content of the newsletters has been brought up in almost every race that he's run since they were discovered in 1996. So they came up in 2008 and again in 2012. In March of this year, a state Supreme Court justice from Wisconsin named Rebecca Bradley issued an apology for some columns that she wrote 24 years ago in a student newspaper. In the columns, she derogatorily referred to gay people as queers and called people with AIDS, quote, degenerates who basically commit suicide through their behavior. She also said that it would be better to get AIDS than cancer because, quote, those affected with the politically correct disease will be getting all of the funding, end quote. And she said that abortion is like the Holocaust and slavery. Now, Bradley says that she was, quote, frankly embarrassed at the content and tone of what I wrote those many years ago, end quote. But she also points out that she wrote them when she was a very young student, 24 years ago. Now, the release of these 24-year-old columns was not random. The organization that found the columns unveiled them just a month before voters in Wisconsin would go to the polls to decide whether Bradley should retain her seat on the court. People who wanted Bradley off the court said that the comments in the columns were so hateful that time didn't really matter. 
People who wanted Bradley to stay said that she had grown and learned since then and did not still hold those beliefs. Now, to be clear, there is also a contingent of people who support Bradley because they, in fact, still hold those beliefs. But that's a different question. So voters in Wisconsin could decide. They could decide whether they thought that Bradley should lose her seat because of something she wrote 24 years ago in a college newspaper. And they decided to keep her. Bradley won her seat back. So you could interpret this as evidence that past transgressions like this can be forgiven, right? Of course, there are plenty of examples of the opposite happening, particularly when the scandals involve affairs and not just past really horrible opinions. In 1987, Gary Hart's presidential campaign was completely ended by a sex scandal. Many think that John Edwards' 2008 campaign was ultimately undone by his affair with a filmmaker. The list goes on and on. There's actually even a Wikipedia page of uh, American political sex scandals, which is kind of fascinating. So anyway, in this future, when our politicians are living with this whole trail of opinions and thoughts and jokes and memes and relationships, how do we handle that? So I want to start answering these questions by going straight to the source. A bona fide young person and a young person with political ambition. Sure. Um, so my name is Eve Jabinski, and I am a rising junior at George Washington University in D.C. Um, I'm double majoring in political science and history with a minor in sustainability And I'm currently involved in a variety of organizations, so I'm kind of doing the typical D.C. intern thing. Um, I've interned at NARAL, Advocates for Youth. I'm going to be with Every Voice this summer. It's a campaign finance reform organization. I also hold elected office on a neighborhood commission where we vote on a lot of matters impacting the neighborhood, mostly things like zoning and liquor licenses. But it's really cool because my district solely consists of students because of the way it's formed, it's all dorms and Greek houses. So I get to work on student-related issues. So after I graduate undergrad, I'm hoping to get like a joint JD, um, possibly a master in public policy, and then work on policy-related issues or maybe practice law and then hopefully pursue higher office. So you're thinking about like running for office in like an elected situation? Yeah, possibly in the future. I mean, obviously you don't have to commit to this right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Eve, and like most people, Eve uses social media. Yeah, um, so I use Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. I have 44,000 tweets, which I guess is a lot more than a lot of people I know my age. I'm also on Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's about it. And as a person with political ambition, Eve actually does think about her social media profiles in the way that a politician might. Yeah, I mean, I generally stick to the rule that if I wouldn't want my employer to see it, then I wouldn't tweet that. She even goes back sometimes to curate her past posts to make sure that she doesn't have anything up there that she might no longer like or believe. Yeah, I mean, I definitely went back and deleted a lot of um, Facebook posts from years past that I feel like no longer represent my opinions. In fact, when Eve was a senior in high school, she did something kind of drastic. So when I was in high school, I was really into Tumblr. And then halfway through my senior year, I deleted my Tumblr because I was like, well, I like Tumblr is a lot of fangirling and things like that. And I thought, well, I don't want someone 20 years from now seeing me fangirling over whatever I was fangirling over back then. Um, so they might not understand that like Tumblr culture that was so popular a few years back. So then I just deleted my Tumblr and felt I don't want any of this coming back to me. So you just like deleted it. You're like, no more. Yeah. That's like, that's drastic. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really think about it anymore. I feel like everyone I know who was on Tumblr is no longer on there. You don't miss it or anything? Nope. And Eve isn't alone. She says that her friends, who are also into politics, do the same things. 
Um, yeah, I actually had a friend just yesterday um, who was freaking out because um, she had has the Time Hop app, and she found that like six years ago when she was sixteen, she had tweeted something that was mildly transphobic. And she really freaked out and was like, I can't believe I believed any of this. Like, I have to go and delete this right away because people are going to find out and that's going to be really bad. Now, Eve does have places where she lets loose a little bit. She has a private Twitter that's locked just for her friends and she has group texts. But even in those places, she chooses her words carefully. So as part of thinking about this episode, I started thinking about the online trail that I have. I am very, very glad that I did not have Twitter growing up because I definitely had a lot of very bad and dumb opinions as a teenager. But while I didn't have Twitter, I did have a live journal. Um, And for those of you who are too young to know what a live journal is, it's basically like an old blogging site. And I actually tried to go back and retrieve my old live journal account just to see if it was still there. And much to my horror, it does, in fact, still exist on the Internet. And it is very embarrassing. And I am not going to tell you how to find it. Uh, There's nothing on there that's, like, racist or sexist, really. But there is some bad poetry. Um, And I thought, oh, okay, I should definitely do what Eve did with her Tumblr. And I should just delete this immediately because I do not want it to exist anymore. Um... But I couldn't because I couldn't remember the password, and I don't have access to the email address that I used to register this live journal, so there is no way for me to prove to them that this is, in fact, my blog and get into it and get rid of it. Um, So it's still there, uh, sadly, um, and I'm not going to tell you any more information about how to find it. Also, on that live journal page, I referenced that I had a Zanga, which for the young people listening is another blogging site, but I can't even find it because I can't remember the username that I used for this Zanga that I apparently had. Um, Anyway, thankfully for everyone on the planet, including me, I have no intention of running for president. But if I did, uh, (laughs) that live journal has some embarrassing poetry that I'm sure my opponents would have a field day with and that I should absolutely pay someone to get rid of if I were to ever decide to become a politician. Politician. And if you think that Eve and I are being overly paranoid with deleting all of these things, I want to introduce you to our next guest this week. Uh, I'm Josh Stewart. I'm the Deputy Communications Director with the Sunlight Foundation. Which is the home to something called Politwoops, which I constantly misspell and mispronounce as Politwoops, but it's Politwoops. Anyway, Politwoops is a little bit of code that grabs up any tweet that a politician deletes. So this covers everybody from local senators to our current presidential candidates. And anytime they delete a tweet, it gets grabbed by the Politwoops code and published on their website. The idea here is to hold politicians accountable, to make sure they can't just go off and say whatever they want and then delete those tweets and claim that they never happened. Now, if you go to politwoops.sunlightfoundation.com, you can read these tweets. And I have to tell you that most of them are actually very boring. A lot of tweets are deleted because of a broken link, a typo. They sent it out uh, at at an inopportune time and decided to wait. And that bucket is not really what Politoops is about. We're not about catching grammar mistakes, right, or anything like that. But there are two other main buckets of deleted tweets, and those are the ones that Politoops is most interested in. When politicians and elected officials are reacting in real time to news, right, and something occurs and they delete that tweet and they remove it from the public record. That is one way we've seen uh, politics be valuable. Um, the, uh, you know, the issue around um, uh, Bergdahl, you know, and, you know, Serial did a podcast about this, but um, when he came 
back, initially a lot of politicians and uh, elected officials talked about how, you know, you know, it's exciting to have him back. We wanted to welcome him back. And then over time, the issue of his return became more controversial, and you saw some deleted tweets, right? For those unfamiliar with who Bo Bergdahl is, the short version is that he was an American soldier who was captured by the Taliban in 2009, and he was released in 2014 in exchange for five Taliban members who were being held at Guantanamo Bay. There's a whole season of the podcast serial about this case if you're interested, but basically the circumstances under which Bo Bergdahl was captured are unclear, and some people think he should be tried for desertion, and it's all very complicated. And I think that was important, right, because the information changed, and so politicians shouldn't be, uh, they should be allowed to change their mind and change their views, but they should be held accountable for the statements they made, right? And the other one that you see with Politoops is what Eve did to her Tumblr and what I have thus far failed to do with my live journal. Folks running for office um, are elected officials, again, deleting tweets that are very old, right? So one year, two years, six months, you know, you know, and there's a number of reasons for that. They could be perfectly legitimate, um, but we think those deserve scrutiny. You know, if if they're going back into tweets six six months, a year, two years. Um, and deleting them, why is that? Now, Josh is quick to stress that Politoops isn't here to say, don't ever delete tweets. He says that sometimes there is a good reason to get rid of old tweets. But public officials, people who hold office or have officially declared their candidacy, should be held accountable for the things that they say, even on a site as fleeting as Twitter. We, yeah, we don't really make a judgment call about that sort of thing, right? Like, our view is if a candidate or a public official um, has deleted a tweet, the public deserves to know about it. And there, there could be a debate and it could, it could be uh, that there's a perfectly reasonable explanation, right? You know, and I think you have to back up a little bit too when it comes to like, often candidates make their entire life story and biography a part of why they run. That's a big part of American politics, right? And so if they're leaving something out or deleting old issues or old tweets or old ideas, I think that adds to the conversation around someone's biography, and that can, uh, I think that can, that often deserves an explanation. So Eve deleting her Tumblr and combing through her Facebook and all of that now, before she's elected, is actually very smart. Because once she is elected, if she is elected, deleting those tweets won't be a private thing. So what happens next? What happens in 30 years when Eve is, in theory, running for president? If she wants to. No pressure, Eve. Uh, When we come back, I've got two versions of that future for you, a dystopian and a slightly less dystopian one. I guess I don't really do utopias on this show ever. But before we do any of that, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, so today's future is about politics and about what happens when people who have grown up online, leaving behind them a trail of easily searchable content, start to run for political office. Now, we've talked to a bona fide young person. We've talked to someone who helps track deleted tweets. And now we're going to talk to somebody who has a lot of experience thinking about social media for politicians. To the extent that anyone um, knows what they're doing, I, I have experience in Um, helping politicians um, create voices online and also just convey um, who they are as people and what they stand for in a way that will generate communities around that candidate and um, translate importantly to, you know, fundraising dollars and and volunteer signups and votes. 
This is Laura Olin. She's a digital strategist for Democratic campaigns, and she was actually one of the first people to work on the Obama 2012 digital team. And eventually, she actually ran Obama's Twitter account. So you got to tweet as President Obama. I did. That's crazy to me. Yeah, for like two years. It was fun. Was it ever scary where you were like, this power that I have? <laughs> oh, all the time. And like, I know, your, your, your biggest uh, fear is that you're going to like accidentally tweet something, you know, that was intended for your personal account. And that, actually, that, that happened a few times on our team. Really? But nothing like too terrible, but... Like someone wished uh, a member of our team happy birthday, but like accidentally did it from the Barack Obama account. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it could, it could have been a lot worse. So Laura is sort of the mastermind behind a whole bunch of internet-y political stuff that you might have already seen. Her team was the one behind Obama's Tumblr account, which came up with all of these kind of weird and funny images that people shared a lot. But some of those things did, in fact, get them into trouble. The one area back in 2012 where we had a bit more freedom was, um, I actually like personally ran it just like as a small project um, to keep myself sane. Um, we had a, a Tumblr um, back when like no one really knew what Tumblr was. Um, and we did we did do a few things on there that, that got us in trouble, um, which is to say that got me in trouble. Um, Basically, Laura would sometimes poke fun at Obama's opponents in these meme-ish kind of internet-y ways, and sometimes those opponents wouldn't take so kindly to it or even really understand it. Uh, the one, the, the worst one was um, someone had, and I can't remember, I can't remember the, the specifics, but someone had um, posted an e-card style um, uh, postcard that included the phrase, and I can't remember the, the specifics, but it included the phrase lady parts. And like Michelle Malkin, <laughs> like discard, like somehow, like someone sent this to her and they actually like got like lady parts or something like that trending on Twitter just from like talking about how vulgar we were, which was really funny. What? Yeah. It was something about like protecting lady parts or something like that. But like I and like me as like a Tumblr user, I was like, oh, that doesn't seem weird or over the line at all. And then obviously like politics, Twitter uh, disagreed, but <laughs> that's fine. But overall, Laura says that she's actually seeing a sort of loosening of what is considered acceptable for politicians to do online. Today, the First Lady has a Snapchat account, and Hillary has embraced pantsuits and the texts from Hillary meme. And she says that it also seems like people are getting more and more willing to excuse past behavior. As an example, um, I was thinking back to when President uh, Bill Clinton, um, back in the 90s, talked about marijuana use, or actually I think he was asked on some MTV forum whether he had ever smoked weed, and he said famously, I didn't inhale. And then fast forward 20 years, and um, uh, Barack Obama was literally part of a group of teenage girl, teenage boys who called themselves the Chun Gang, I think it was, and like, you know, went, <laughs> went around like hotboxing in their van in Hawaii, and like no one really cared. So I do think that um, just, you know, times change and, and people's standards change about like what, you know, as we were saying before, like what is presidential and, and what's um, appropriate for a president to do or not do. And, and I think those standards change according to what people do in their own lives. So like, you know, as, as marijuana use has become more mainstream, um, it doesn't seem so crazy. And there even seems to be a shift in how consistent people want their candidates to be when it comes to keeping the same stance over the years. In 2004, John Kerry was often attacked for being a 
flip-flopper, someone who just changed his mind all the time. Now, that actually wasn't borne out by the data on his voting records, but the accusation was very effective. And ultimately, people did see him as weak and untrustworthy. And that's a little bit less of an issue now. People are more willing to let politicians change their minds about things when they get new information. Um, I do think that generally the flip-flopper thing is less of a thing. Like, I remember it was huge in 2004, and, you know, Tim Russert on, on Meet the Press would um, set up these incredibly cringeworthy moments where he would, you know, play someone's quote from three years ago and be like, do you still believe that now? Um, but that's just, it seems to be less present in, you know, the general discussion around around politics and um, and uh, political stances, like, uh, like Hillary just like reverse her stance on, I think, free college, like, um, this week. And everyone was like, great, rather than you're so hypocritical. So this brings us to our positive version of this future, a future in which voters learn to approach their candidates as flawed individuals, people who have made missteps and people who can change their minds. This isn't to say that we let people off the hook for their past behavior, but rather that we are okay with them saying... I was wrong, and here is how I've changed for the better. Or maybe, and here's another version of that future that's a little bit less hopeful, maybe we just don't care about a politician's past as long as they've convinced us that they'll be a good president. We've seen that, I guess, a little bit with Trump in this election cycle. For most candidates, Trump's Twitter history and past comments would be a total campaign killer. For those who haven't been paying attention, uh, he's said all of these sort of racist and inflammatory things that your average politician just couldn't get away with. But somehow, the normal rules of politics don't seem to apply to Donald Trump. And maybe he's the future. Maybe Americans are fine with people just saying horrible things all the time as long as they think that they'll be a strong president. For Trump, of course, many of his supporters don't see anything wrong with being racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, etc., etc., etc. But setting aside Trump for a second, uh, I think that there is an interesting ethical question that comes up here. Is there some kind of fundamental threshold for past behavior or comments after which the person becomes unredeemable? Like, are there some things that are so bad that we are just not willing to let that person be elected, even if they say that they have changed? So, for example, in the case of the Supreme Court judge in Wisconsin, those were really bad things to think, let alone write down. Now, she says that she no longer thinks those things, but her opponents argued that what she wrote was so hateful that there's just kind of no coming back from that, that someone who would ever think and write those things should not be entrusted with a position of such power. Is that the case? Are there some things that are so hateful that simply disqualify you from holding elected office no matter how old you were when you had those opinions? What if she had written something even worse? What if she had praised, I don't know, child sex slavery or something? Is there any thought that is so gross and so terrible that we just won't believe that a person who said that could change? I don't know the answer to any of these questions, but I do like to think that people can change. And I do think that, personally, I would want to know if a candidate once thought bad things, even if they have now changed their minds, because that way they can sort of show that they are better now, and they can prove that in some way. In this sort of lighter version of this future, we all see candidates with their warts and all, past tweets, racist jokes, fat-shaming tumblers, and ableist Snapchats. We see it all, and we hold them accountable and ask them to prove how they have changed for the better. 
And then we grapple with that on a case-by-case basis, admitting that every human is flawed and hopefully voting for the best person for the job at hand. But there's a dystopian version of this future, too. And it's not one in which everybody just gives up on trying to elect people without hateful pasts. It's a future where we don't know the past of our elected officials. A future where the only people we elect are those with a completely clean, perfect online record. And the only folks who can have that, of course, are people with money and connections and foresight. And the only people who can have that, of course, are the people with the money and the connections and the foresight to do so. And do you, do you necessarily want only people who, you know, know from the time that they're 14 that they want to be in public office and have, you know, like the time and the energy to do that? I, I mean, I would prefer if our public officials came from, you know, more walks of life and, and more professions. But yeah, it's, it's really scary to think about. So while the rest of us normal people carry on putting our dumb opinions on the internet, the political elite groomed by their parents from a very young age either avoid social media entirely or pay someone to curate their social media record. Which means that maybe our future politicians do indeed have all kinds of horrible opinions, but there won't be any way to know or prove it. And in this future, where we refuse to grapple with the idea that someone might be qualified for office even if they tweeted something sexist when they were 15, we wind up excluding a huge swath of the population from politics, which, of course, already happens in the United States, right? I mean, politicians in general in the U.S. already come from relatively privileged backgrounds. But in this future, in this dystopian future, it's worse. There would just be no elected officials who didn't come from money or have connections. Now, Josh from Politoops thinks I'm overstating this dystopia. I mean, that that seems to me just like a little bit of a leap. I mean, there's always been student newspapers, and before Twitter there were blogs, you know, and things that folks were held accountable for that they wrote in their youth, right? And Twitter is just a new iteration of young people that perhaps have public amb- ambitions sort of reconciling, like, how, how, much, how much do they want to exercise you know, various viewpoints that they have, whether they be controversial or not, versus like, you know, how will that statement live over time, right? And I think Twitter and Facebook and other types of social media media has been an iteration of, you know, something folks that want to run for office have been dealing with a long time. And in some ways, he's right, right? We've already heard about people who've had their college writings brought up against them. But I can't help but feel like Twitter and Facebook offer an easier, faster way to mouth off online. I mean, in theory, college newspapers have editors. Nobody is editing your Twitter or Facebook. And with more opportunities to record your dumb thoughts for all of the internet to see and search for later, the more danger there is that you will do that. Or maybe all future politicians just use Snapchat, so there's no historic record of their terrible jokes or ideas. It does seem like we might be entering a new phase of social platforms where permanence is is actually like a, 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 uh, the opposite of a selling point. So it seems like we might be moving toward a future where um, where fewer things are discoverable uh, far in far in the future. So I wouldn't be hugely surprised if um, it would, you know, in you know, in 20 years, like who who would even be able to, to find like your live journal from from a few years ago, you know? So um, I think it, it might just be like a, a matter also of, of technology changing that it that it'll, it'll be hard to discover these things. And, um, you know, for 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 good and for all. But Eve says that even Snapchat is not safe. I think that with Snapchat, people tend to 
lose their inhibitions and I think that's really bad because people have posted things on Snapchat that are quite frankly not things that they would want their boss to see or want really anyone besides their immediate friends to see and that I think that's definitely out of all of the platforms probably the one that could potentially harm people if they want to run for office in the future. What do you think? Will our future voting selves be able to handle complex politicians who once had bad ideas? Or will our future politicians only come from elite circles, savvy and rich enough to have a clean record? Or some combination of both? It's always some combination of both, isn't it? For more on past and future political campaigns, head to flashforwardpod.com, where I'll post more links, but not a link to my live journal. You will pry that out of my cold, dead hands. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to John Olier, Stephen Grenad, Wendy Hari, Matt Weller, Brent Rose, Ari Barnofsky, and Caroline Cinders. The break music this week is by Aneo the Little Brother. Additional music for the campaign ads by Dr. Turtle, Scomber, Steve Combs, Komiku, and Sergei Cheremisinov. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in this episode, email us there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. This week, I will give you a hint. Look at the names of the future candidates from the intro. And if you want to support the show, there are lots of ways you can do that as well. You can go to flashforwardpod.com slash donate to get more information about all of the various ways you can give money. But if money is not on the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about us. That does, in fact, help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.